Metron Garage is a company designing unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. They've got eight models to choose from, including two-story options, which I think is super cool, while with a very modern look and feel to them. And they come in all sizes, and they're fully customizable. You can check out them today and start specking your own ultimate garage at metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. So be sure to check it out. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, this is Greg Stanley. We have an exciting episode for you here today. It's all about the Cunningham Corvettes. Now, there were three of these cars built, and one of them is being auctioned off at RM Sotheby's Amelia Island sale on Saturday the 22nd. And I will have Corvette expert extraordinaire Kevin McKay give us a little bit of an insight on the Cunningham Corvette. But before I do, I would like to read the history of this car as provided by R.M. Sotheby's. So this is directly from the auction description that you can find along with the pictures of this iconic and historic car at rmsotheby's.com. So this 1960 Chevrolet Corvette chassis 3535 is a milestone of American motorsport history. As the number one car run by American privateer Briggs Cunningham at the 1960 24 Hours of Le Mans, developed with clandestine assistance by General Motors team under Corvette lead Zora Arcos Duntoff, it represents a crucial part of Cunningham's final and successful effort to win the world's most challenging race in an American car with American drivers. By the time he was approached by Zora in the fall of 1959, American privateer Briggs Swift Cunningham II, heir to the Procter & Gamble fortune, call out the Cincinnati, an entrepreneur, had all but given up on winning at Le Mans, an understandable conclusion after a decade of effort. Well before the Ford Motor Company trained its sights on Ferrari, achieving a string of triumphs with its GT40 beginning in 1966, Cunningham has set out to conquer the 24-hour race. Such were his patriotic convictions that he took it upon himself to build an American car worthy of Le Mans. Entering a pair of Cadillacs in 1950 and cars of his own making from 1951 to 1955, each hand-built in his West Palm Beach, Florida facility. Every year, Cunningham's team drivers were, of course, exclusively American. As a wealthy and well-regarded sportsman, Cunningham enamored French crowds and the American public alike with his ambition, lavish spending, and extremely competitive nature. Yet even as Cunningham triumphed in his other competitive pursuits, winning the 1958 America's Cup race, success at the Circus de la Sarthe eluded him. Meanwhile, a team at GM had been at work developing a competitive spec car aimed at marquee endurance events such as Sebring, Daytona, and the crown jewel, Le Mans. This team was led by Ed Cole and managed by Zora, with vehicle testing completed by some of the most notable American drivers of the time, including Cunningham. However, development was slow. The 1955 Le Mans disaster and changing sentiments about racing accumulated in the Automobile Manufacturers Association racing ban, which prohibited all official American manufacturing racing programs effective 
June the 1st, 1957. By late 1958, competitive undercurrents had surged and development kicked off again, albeit supported by strictly unofficial agreements between manufacturers and privateer race teams. Negotiations with Cunningham completed on January the 7th of 1960, and by January 19th, Duntoff's team was already preparing a suite of bespoke racing engines to be dropped into the yet-to-be-acquired cars. On March the 16th, three similarly equipped Corvettes were sourced for Cunningham to disguise Chevrolet's involvement. All chassis were purchased via dealer Don Allen Midtown Chevrolet of New York City. Each chassis was specified with quick ratio steering, heavy-duty metallic brake linings, heavy-duty suspension, a close-ratio four-speed transmission, a posi-traction limited-slip differential, radio-delete, and temperature-controlled radiator fan. The three chassis were further modified by Alfro Momo with Stuart Warner gauges, a Halibrand quick-release fuel cap, Halibrand magnesium wheels, Firestone racing tires, competition shock absorbers, Bendix fuel pumps, an additional front sway bar, a 37-gallon fuel tank, additional ducting, two seats from a Douglas C-47 Skytrain aircraft, and a side-exit racing exhaust system. All three cars would later receive further modifications after additional testing, including changes to the rear axles, cylinder heads, engine internals, even magnesium hoods were specified, but it is unconfirmed as to whether these were fitted to the trio. Prior to Le Mans, the Cunningham cars benefited from Chevrolet engineering and testing expertise, on a strictly unofficial basis, of course, at least in theory, leading to a constant stream of improvements to the chassis. This included pivotal development tests at Sebring and Daytona, at Bridgehampton Race Circuit in Sag Harbor, New York, and in the months leading up to the 24-hour race. Unfortunately, the 12 hours of Sebring did not bode well for the team. Just 27 laps into the race, the number one Corvette suffered a rear hub failure and was catapulted end over end, suffering major damage. Thankfully, driver John Fitch escaped with only minor injuries. Some 14 laps later, the number two Corvette, driven by Fred Windridge, experienced an engine failure, forcing another early retirement. Undeterred by their disappointing outing at Sebring, the Cunningham team set to repairing the damage to chassis 2538 and outfitting the two other cars with rebuilt race engines and additional modifications gleaned from testing data. Four Corvettes arrived for preparation at Le Mans in early June, where they were assigned the numbers they would wear for the grueling 24-hour race. Cunningham number one, then number 3535, which is this car that's being auctioned off, number two, number three, and Camerati Racing Team number four. Interestingly, chassis 3535's Le Mans registration papers dated May 25th show Duntov listed as a co-driver for the race with Cunningham. When Ed Cole found out he came to a private agreement with Cunningham, which conditioned GM's continued unofficial support for the Le Mans effort, as well as Duntov's trip to France on Cunningham promising he would not allow Duntov behind the wheel for the race. Ed Cole knew Duntov was far too valuable of an asset to potentially lose in the dangerous 24-hour race, and Duntov had already raced at Le Mans four times between 1952 and 1955, supposedly on GM's dime. While Duntov is documented as having been behind the wheel of a Corvette during several testing sessions, Cunningham kept his promise and Duntov was replaced by Bill Kimberly, accomplished racer in his own right. Cunningham's decision supposedly cost him his friendship with Duntov for 14 years. That's some sour grapes. Car number one began the race with Cunningham behind the wheel and together with the other two Cunningham Corvettes, they appeared competitive against the European GT 5.0 field during the race's opening hours. Around 6 p.m., however, it started raining heavily, forcing many to pit and make adjustments. 
It was during this time that number one would make its first driver change. All fueled up with new tires and with fresh driver Bill Kimberly behind the wheel, number one left the pits. Kimberly piloted the car swiftly through Dunlop, pushing the car to its limits around the Mousseline Strait. Kimberly was nearing the completion of his first lap when just after passing over the top of the hill, after Arnage, the car was met by a wall of rain. As Kimberly lifted off the power, he lost control of car number one, spun, flipped twice, and caught fire. Luckily for Kimberly, the car landed right side up and he emerged from the crash unscathed. The fire melted the car's engine ignition wires, causing 3535's retirement after just 32 laps. Shortly thereafter, a similar event forced the number two car driven by Thompson off the track at the same corner, damaging the front and rear bodywork. Though number two limped back to the pits and was repaired, a later engine failure during lap 207 forced another retirement for the Cunningham effort. The number three Corvette piloted by Bob Grossman and John Fitch proved to be the most resilient of the Cunningham entries, winning the GT 5.0 class and finishing eighth overall. After Le Mans, all three Cunningham Corvettes were brought back stateside and MoMA returned the engines to Frank Burrell at GM. The three chassis were then passed along to Cunningham ally Bill Frick of Rockville Center, New York, who proceeded to sell the cars in Florida. Unlike its brethren, chassis 3535 was immediately sold by Frick to another Cunningham friend, SCCA racer Marshall Perry Bosworth Jr. of Delray Beach, Florida. Boswell received the car as race, save for the engine and hardtop, even the Le Mans Roundel was still intact. Historic imagery provided by the Boswell family presents illustrations of the chassis' transformation from a beat-up motorless race car to an extravagant streamlined roadster. The front end was replaced with the single headlight fenders of an earlier style intersected by a unique Zogato-esque grille of Boswell's design. The hood received a small central scoop. The rear end remained largely intact, but the stock design's distinctive side strakes were filled in. Finally, Boswell clad the whole chassis with black paint and perched it on chrome turbine wheels shod in wide white wall tires. At some point around 1966, Boswell sold the now-disguised Exclamant racer. According to historical research on file, the car passed through several local owners, one of whom painted the car green and then yellow until arriving under the care of Jerry Moore in 1971. Moore sold the car in 1974 to Dan Mathis, and soon afterwards the car disappeared from the public eye. It would remain out of sight for the next 37 years. In 1993, well before chassis 3535 resurfaced, noted Corvette restorer Kevin McKay, who we will hear from shortly, was able to obtain chassis numbers for all three Cunningham Corvettes that raced at the 1960 24-hour Le Mans via contacts in France. It's a fascinating story as to how he did that. Be sure to stay tuned to hear it. This information would eventually prove crucial in confirming the identities of all three of the Cunningham cars, including this storied Corvette. In early 2011, a Tampa classified appeared online for a pre-production Zagato-bodied Pontiac prototype with a low asking price that reflected its still-obscured history. The seller, Rick Carr, was clearing out the estate of his recently deceased father, the Honorary Richard W. Carr Sr., and uncovered the neglected chassis in a corner of his father's warehouse. The car's status as one of the Cunningham Le Mans entries was unknown to Carr, until he began researching the chassis number. This research eventually led him to Cunningham historian Larry Berman, who was able to confirm that he was in possession of a very special car, the number one Cunningham Le Mans entry. Presented today in as-found condition, this unique chassis still presents conclusive evidence of its racing history, despite Boswell's best efforts to completely transform its appearance. 
inside the wheel wells. Bespoke intake ducting is aimed at the car's original race spec drum brakes and continues into the cabin footwell. An additional wiring harness still hangs from where it would have powered the driver's side roundel light at Le Mans. The oversized fuel tank remains behind the cabin and the underbody shows evidence of mounting points for additional components such as oil coolers as well as safety straps and cutouts for the side exit race exhaust that once serenaded the French crowd of nearly 250,000. Ahead of the windshield sits a mounting hole for the central windshield wiper used at Le Mans, a key feature that helped enable the initial identification of this chassis while a patch on the rear deck lid clearly shows where the quick fill fuel cap assembly previously emerged. Inside the engine bay now sits a 350 cubic inch Chevrolet V8 from the 1970 model year. A mounting plate for the Duntov specified remote starter is still tacked to the firewall, however. Telling traces of the car's original Le Mans livery has been preserved under the subsequent layers of paint, while the central console, still displaying its original blue finish, is partially retained. With Cunningham's number two and number three Corvettes having been restored to their 1960 Le Mans glory, this car, chassis 3535, is fully deserving of a similar treatment. It is surely among the most important Corvettes ever offered to the public, a testament to Briggs Cunningham's dogged efforts to prove American's medal on the global motorsports stage. This chassis played as an undeniable role in the push that finally brought him victory at Le Mans in 1960 a victory that helped cement the Corvette's reputation as America's sports car. What a great recap, and now it is time to hear from the expert. Okay, you've just gotten an overview of the Cunningham Corvettes that will be available at RM Sotheby's Amelia sale. Now let's hear from the Corvette expert who knows more about these cars than anyone else. I'd like to welcome Kevin McKay, who is the founder of Corvette Repair Incorporated out of Valley Stream, New York. Kevin, how you doing, buddy? Greg, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate your time today. And, and just as a brief overview of your business, you mostly work on really high-end, rare, special Corvettes, such as the L88, the Grand Sports, uh, some of the prototype cars, some of the cutaway cars. If you would, for our listeners, just kind of give an overview of your business up there in New York. Okay. I mean, we're known for our restoration work, Greg, but we do regular repair as well. Uh, we specialize from C1, C2, and C3 only. Uh, that's what we know quite well. But we, you're right, we do have a reputation of, on some very rare, significant cars, but we're a regular uh, service shop for Corvettes only. Once in a while, we'll get a specialty car, and we had two uh, real special Penske Camaros come in, uh, serial number one and uh, first 67, and the uh, serial number one, first 68. Trans Am Camaros, but usually 99.9% of the time, it's just strictly Corvettes from C1 to C3. I was 23 years old. I got my first Corvette. When I was 21, it was the anniversary of the Corvette, 1978, and I remember uh, preparing that car for delivery to a gentleman. There was a lot of hype on that, and that car, I think, retailed for like $14,000, and they were going as much as, you know, thirty to 50000 a piece at the time, back in 78, which is just unheard of money. I've always enjoyed them, and I was quite familiar with those cars at the time. I worked for a, a couple of dealerships. I started my business, and I think in March of 85, and I've been doing it ever since. I had a 65 Corvette Coupe, and uh, I did probably 85% of the work myself. And the only thing I could not do was do uh, body work and paint. So I had somebody paint the car for $600 wow. and put it all back together again. And uh, I started going to some local shows, and uh, I did quite well. And then I heard about uh, NCRS. I, joined, I became a member there back in the early 80s and heard about Bloomington and got a hold of a gentleman named David Burroughs, who was my, one of my mentors, who wrote a book about auto restoration. 
on a 65 396 convertible. I hunted him down and called him up, and he was just, he could be any nicer to me. I'm a nobody in the hobby, and I just wanted to learn. Right. And once a month for about maybe six months, he would, uh, I would ask him all these questions about uh, what finishes on certain parts and head markings and stuff like that. And he said to me, he says, well, uh, Kevin, he goes, uh, I know you haven't been to too many places, he says, but, you know, Bloomington is a real high-end show, and, you know, you know, maybe the first time out, you might not even get an award, or you might get a bronze or a silver. And I said, well, David, that's why I'm talking to you, because I ain't going unless I get a gold. Right. <laughs> and I, I want you to do, I want you, I want you to guide me through it. Well, it's not going to be easy, but he was very patient with me, and he, he was just, uh, I learned a tremendous amount of um, information from him, and and we spoke maybe it was once a month for about an hour. I took, I took all my notes. I bought an old flatbed truck, 62 Chevy flatbed truck. I drove it uh, 18-hour drive uh, from New York to uh, Bloomington, Illinois, by myself. And I, I was nervous, as, as you can imagine, in your 20s. Had the car judged. The judges were very professional, and I was like, "Wow, this is this is." I'm really impressed with this. You know, they all came out with matching uniforms, hats, and shirts, and, and jackets, and so on. And it turned out I'm looking at all the cars because I'm doing like a comparison to my car versus some of the other cars in, in my group, which sure. I think was a 10-car limit. And I said, hey, my car's pretty good. You know, I'm looking at some of the other cars, and I don't want to say anything to anybody because I didn't know anybody. And and I said, wow, I think I'm going to do okay here. And it turned out I after the it was all the uh, the procedure was all over, it was the end of the day, and I was waiting for if I'm, if I'm going to get a bronze or silver or a gold. I went up to one of the judges and said, by the way, I said, I just – I, I made you probably don't know, but how'd you think I did? I said, uh, no doubt you had the nicest car there in the group. Wow. I said, really? I said, wow. So I, I got the gold. I was so excited. I haven't met Mr. Burroughs yet. I knew what he looked like because there's enough photographs of him in his book. And I finally saw him. And I ran over to him. I go, Mr. Burroughs, Mr. Burroughs. <laughs> he goes, oh, you must be Kevin McKay. I said, I am in the flesh. I'm here. Well, how'd you do? I said, I told you I'd get the gold. I said, because of your guidance. If it wasn't for you, I'd never, I never would have came. And you, you encouraged me, and I, I did my homework. And I said, yeah, I heard your car is quite spectacular. I said, well, now I want to become a judge. Wow. Really? Well, I have to groom you. So once, you know, once a month for an hour at a time, you groom me for 12 months. And believe it or not, I've been judging it. This is my 35th year judging in a row. Oh, my goodness. Wow, that's amazing. I'm still doing it. I started in my 20s, and I'm in my 60s. Now I'm on Medicare. <laughs> that's awesome. So your first car at Bloomington Gold received a gold, right? Yeah, a high-scoring car in, uh, in its class at the time. And I was very proud of that. And uh, I had a, uh, a reporter come up to me, and they, they did a book on Bloomington Gold cars. I did a nice feature uh, of my car at the time. And uh, believe it or not, the background was the Twin Towers, believe it or not. Oh, wow. The book, it was, which is really something. But who knew, who knew back then? Do you still have that car or know where that car is? Uh, yeah, the car's still in Long Island. It's owned by another client of mine, um, believe it or not. But what really happened was before I, um, before I sold it, I, I took it to a show called the Mock and Connor Chevrolet Show. And I met a gentleman named a guy named Ed Mueller, who at the time, in the early 80s, was probably the number one Corvette collector. And just some of the cars that he owned... He owned one of the original Grand Sports, Grand Sport Number no. Two. Wow. He owned the factory ZL1 Corvette, one of only two built. That was the yellow one. That's owned by a gentleman named Roger Jeske down in down in Florida. He owned 
Not one, but two factory 67 LED8s. He owned the only mid-year Corvette that raced at Le Mans, the number nine car. That's owned by another collector in Ohio. And he owned a black, black side pipe LED8 car with 11,000 original miles. Wow. And he owned probably another half a dozen C3 LED8s. And I was at a show called the Mountain Connor Chevrolet Show in Paramus, New Jersey, back in the early 80s. And I brought my 65 Corvette there to show it. And I was able to get my car. I got there really early. I was able to put my car in the showroom, overlooking the Mountain Connor fluorescent sign. <laughs> and my car was being judged. And I didn't know a soul. And this gentleman came up to me. And he says, um, he goes, this is your car. I said, yes, it is. I, I, would you mind? I'd like to judge your car. Me and a couple of guys are going to judge cars. So they're judging my cars. And he said, well, what restoration shop uh, did this car? I said, well, I did most of the work myself, except for the bodywork and paint. But I did everything else myself. And he says, well, if you ever get a shop, call me. Right. And he gave me his business card. And on the business card, I said, Ed Mueller. And I read about him in all the magazines. I said, oh, you're Mr. Mueller. I said, I read some wonderful things about you. you got a hell of a collection of cars. He goes, yeah. He goes, but boy, I'm, I'm very impressed with your work, Kevin. If you ever have a shop, let me know. Well, guess what? My last job after I got fired from that, I started my business. And guess who I called first? Yeah, Ed that's Mueller. right. <laughs> and the first car he gave me to work on was a factory Z- 69 ZL1 coupe, one of the only two built. Wow. That's how I started off. And what happened was he gave me his 67 L88, or he gave me his 67 L8 Le Mans car, or he gave me one of his C3 L88s, and then he gave me some other cars. And for the first 17 years in business, we became best of friends, and he became he'd been, he was my best customer. And that really sent the trend in the Corvette community that this guy from New York is doing all his Mr. Mueller's work. Right. And Ed was a showman and we showed the cars and word got out about some of the special cars that we did and people started looking at the cars and they were, I guess, impressed with the work and one led to another and I grew and found a piece of property and bought a building. But what happened was that when I tried to buy the building or tried to buy the piece of property to have a building built, I had zero credit. The only thing I had was a Macy's card, credit card. <laughs> so the guy that had the building for sale was one of my customers in my old my, in my little rented shop I, I used to rent and he said um, well look I got this piece of property I think we can build you a building here and, and you can it'd be a dream come true because I was I was in this little one bay shop she says well you have to get a loan so I went down to my local bank and the bank goes you have any credit I said well I have the Macy's card <laughs> well I'm sorry sir but I ain't got to cut it you know I need, I need more than that to you know to loan you money to buy this property and then have the building built I'm sorry, but I, we can't. We, we you're too much of a risk because you have no credit. I said my twenties. So I went back to the owner of the property, my customer, and he said, "Look, Kevin, I may be out of my mind, but I'm going to hold the mortgage for you." Wow! And guess what? It never was late uh, on my payments, and I paid off in 15 years, and I'm still in the building today. Wow! So that's amazing. That's a heck of a a career journey you have there. I mean, to like you said to not have a college degree, but then to learn everything that you needed to learn by hands-on, reaching out to who you needed to reach out to, make the right connections, do the work, and have the results. That's an amazing way to start the business, and it sounds like you really got off to a great start just because of the high standard you had for your cars, right? Well, I mean, I, it was, uh, I was obsessed with it. I read, I read every Corvette book I could think of, learned a lot about the history, and believe me, I made a lot of mistakes early on because sometimes you learn from your mistakes. I learned self-taught pretty much. I mean, I was I was a line mechanic at Chevrolet for years 
and I, and I knew the theory behind it, but when it came to restoration, I just learned from going to shows and, and taking a lot of pictures of other people's work and learning from them and asking a lot of questions, and that's how you get a lot of knowledge. Like I said, I fell, I fell on my, off my feet quite a few times over the years, but in the end, it really, it really paid off, and I, I met some wonderful people because what really makes this hobby other people, they really do. It's, just, it's, been, a, it's been a great journey for me, and I'm going to, as long as I got my health, I'm going to continue on. And, uh, you know, we have two uh, factory 57 Sebring cars we're working on right now, which is unbelievable. So we, I, we, we've been very blessed. I've been very blessed. But like I said before, you always practice what you preach. If you say something, you have to back it up. Right. If you're going to say something, make a statement, back it up. And that's what we've always done. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really great. And I do want to move on to the Cunningham Corvettes. But before I do, I did want to find out, I mean, you're working on some crazy rare stuff. I mean, the prototype Corvettes, the rear engine cars, you know, the cutaways. Are most of those, are all of those from private collections? Or are you doing some work for, like, the Corvette Museum? I support the National Corvette Museum. I think it's just a wonderful, spectacular place. If you have never been there, I would highly recommend it. Uh, We have three cars there right now that we're involved with that... um, that are there on display. I, I, I just, I just, I love what I do, and it, it's not a job to me. It's more of a hobby, and I don't call myself an expert because I learn every single day. And I'm open-minded. Um, I'm far from a know-it-all, and sometimes uh, I have to appear in court, and people hire me uh, for my time to, as supposedly an expert. And I said, no, I'm just a, I'm just an enthusiast because <laughs> I'm always learning. Right, you know, because I can't, I can't know from 1953 to present Corvettes. This is, there's no way I know everything by memory. So I don't consider myself an expert. I just consider myself just a, a hobbyist or an enthusiast. Right, but, right. You know, sometimes yeah. I, know, I know better. I know better than others. But you know, like I said, it's always a learning process for me. And I think if you have that kind of attitude, you're constantly learning. Sure. Yeah, that's for sure, especially with some of the cars you've restored. I imagine just finding out how they're supposed to be properly restored was a big learning curve on a lot of these cars because some of them don't have another one that you could reference, right? Uh, yeah, well, like we, we did work on the Surf 2. That was a, that was a real one-of-one one, and the XP819 car and, uh, you know, finding the 003, the old, world's oldest production Corvette in existence, finding that on eBay. And, uh you know, like is the ZL1 and the 67 LA cars and some of the cars that went to either Lamar, Sebring, or Daytona. Um, we, we've been very fortunate. But, see, I didn't get married until I was 50 because I just I just worked too much. That was my problem. I worked, I worked six, seven days a week. I, I probably would have been a lousy husband. I probably would have been a lousy father if I had children. Right. Um, and my passion at the time was just, you know, going to shows. Uh, you know, I met a lot of nice people along the way. A lot of them became, you know, very close to me, and uh, like I said, I'm still going to continue on. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really great. Well, moving on to the Cunningham Corvettes, from what I've read and what I understand is you were key in not only discovering, you know, what the VIN numbers were to these cars, but actually digging up and restoring some of these cars. Could So could you give our listeners kind of an overview of your involvement with the Cunningham cars? Well, um, Ed Mueller, who was the number one Corvette collector at the time, had a Corvette that raced at Le Mans in 1967. It was a factory LA car that came out of a place called Dana Chevrolet in South, Southgate, California. And Dick Ulstrand, um, most people know who he was, Mr. Mr. Corvette himself, was uh, the uh, high-performance manager for Dana Chevrolet and has been racing since the, since the 50s. They had an opportunity to go to Le Mans, and they ordered a special car at the dealership. And uh, it came in, and they, it was leading at the race. It was leading its class for 13 hours until a wristpin uh, went on it. And uh, 
But what happened was I was going through the scrapbook that Mr. Mueller had, and in there it had all these inspection sheets with a serial number on it. And I looked at it and I said, but how'd you get this from? He goes, well, I, I heard that, the, uh, that, that Lamar has uh, some really unbelievable records. I wrote, I wrote to them. Probably about three or four months later, I got all, the, all those documents from Lamar. I said, well, I know that 1960 was the first year for Corvettes that entered Lamar. Uh, you think they would have those records that far back? He says, well, what do you got to lose? <laughs> Write to them. So I wrote to them. Six months later, I got nothing, nothing in the mail, nothing. And then one time I had dinner with Ed, and I said, Ed, you know, I don't get it. Maybe they don't have any records. Well, how'd you do it? I said, I, you know, I, I found out, you know, the, uh, the address for uh, Lamar. I wrote to them. Well, did you write it in French or did you write it in English? <laughs> I said, I don't know French. I wrote it in English. He goes, you idiot, you got to write it in French. <laughs> I said, well, you didn't tell me that. Well, you didn't ask. <laughs> right. I said, what else you got to do? I said, well, tell me now. He goes, well, he goes, I found out that you have to send a bouquet of flowers in. Good gesture. I said, really? So I, uh, I had a customer and uh, that was French. And then I even went to a French school. And I, I rewrote the letter in French, same address. And about three months later, I get a fax copy of all the Corvettes in 1960 at Risa Lamont with the serial numbers. Wow. So I had the Holy Grail in my hand, and I think that was like 1993, I believe that was. I couldn't believe it. At the time, one has been found, the number two car has been found by a guy named Michael Pillsbury, and the number one car and the number three car were still unknown. So I went after those cars, and I had a couple of clients that are, uh, either work for the government or they, uh, the law enforcement people. So I asked them if they could do me a favor and they ran the VIN and I got, I got, actually I got three hits actually. I got one hit that, uh, Michael Pillsbury owned the number two car in California, which I knew he knew what he had. So I got no sense going after that car. Right. And then, uh, the number one car was, uh, was last titled in 74 by a guy named Jerry Elmore in Tampa, Florida on Delaware street. Don't forget it. And then the third car, which is a class winner car, was a pilot named James Walsh in St. Louis. So I said, well, let me see if I get any more hits. So I did some more research, and I find out that uh, James Walsh was still living in St. Louis, and we, I called him, and he said he still had the car, didn't know what it was. It was just converted back to a streetcar. And it took seven years to get the car from him. Wow. But in the interim, I, uh, at the time, uh, Bob Grossman, the original driver, and John Fitch were still alive. So I, I, I'm friendly with both those guys and let them know that I know where their car was. That's the one with the dry ice on top of the, on the, on the fuel injection plenum. Uh, when the, uh, one of the pit crew guys forgot to put the radio cap back on the radiator, unless all the fluid and by, by the rules, you can't put any more fluid in the car at least unless you go 25 laps. So they had to put dry ice to keep the engine cool. Wow. So. What happened was uh, me and Chip Miller, who's Lance's uh, father, is the uh, uh, one of the owners of Carlisle Events. Uh, we were very, very close. We judged together Bloomington for many years. We became real best of friends at the time. And uh, I told him that I'm, you know, I'm going after this car. And he said, you know, Kevin, my all-time favorite car in the whole wide world is that is that car. He goes, I graduated high school in 1960. When I first saw Mike Pillsbury's car in Monterey, California in 87, I almost fainted. <laughs> Cars is beautiful, and I said, I tell you, I would love to own that car. I said, you know, Chip, we're best of friends. Next best thing owning them is having your friends own them. Right. I said, there's other cars I'm going after. There's another car that I really want. It's called a Penske Corvette. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do here. If I get that car, you're going to get it for wherever I pay for it. And he said, well, in return, Kevin, you're getting the restoration because you're the only guy that I can that can do it right. You and your team. I said, okay, we got a deal. We shook hands and we talked about that car every single day for years. And finally. 
finally, I would send this guy um, a Christmas card, Corvette hat, Corvette book, <laughs> Corvette magazine, and I kept in touch with uh, Mr. Walsh and his wife. And then I would call him during the holidays, see how he was doing, him and his family. And I said, look, I know you take good care of my car. I'm going to get that car from you. He goes, yeah, yeah, but right now I'm still enjoying it. It's not for sale. It's not for sale. <laughs> Seven years finally. And she told me, if that car ever comes up for sale, I don't care what time it is, day or night, you promise me you'll call me. I said, not a problem. So I, I get home one night. It was a Sunday night. And uh, I was out with some friends. And it was about 1 in the morning. And I played my message machine and said, it's Mr. Walsh. If you want the car, it's yours. Wow. I was so excited. What I did was I contacted Chip at 1 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. The phone rings twice, and I hear, you got me the car. <laughs> I didn't know it was me. Because what other idiot would call me up at 1 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday? <laughs> really great that uh, he knew exactly who it was calling him at that time and why. And it, I just love the persistence and the fact that you had to write back in French, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Oh, we just went on and on and on. How many years was it from the time that you first made your first effort in writing that letter to the time that your client got that car? Oh, it was, it was, well, it was seven years. It was 93, and we got the car, I think, in 2000, 2001. Yeah, so okay. About seven years, yeah. That's how much we, I mean, we just kept on it because the guy didn't want to sell it, but we knew where it was, and I was afraid that the, uh, there'd be other people, you know, behind me tracking it down, and I could feel it, and I said, you know, it was, it, it, you know, the stars were aligned properly and um, as at the right time, right place. But you see, what I did was I didn't push anybody. I, I, I asked them if they gave me their uh, word that if, when you're ready to sell it, I'm your buyer. Right. And, uh, and they, kept their, they kept their word. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. But, but to get back on the other Cunningham car, the number one car, that car took me 19 years to find. And I didn't find the car. If it wasn't for Chip, I know where I got that car. I'm going to tell you why. Because once we got the three car for Chip, Chip goes, we got to get you the one car. you got to get the one car. You you and me are best of friends. I'm going to help you get that one car. I'm going to help you. So what I did was when we were restoring the number three car, our team, um, I made duplicates of everything. I made the roll bar. I made the hood louvers. We made the, the headlight covers. And, you know, we just made duplicates of everything. Because maybe one day we, we would find that particular car. So Chip had a rare blood disease and he died in March of 2004 and Chip at the time was the only guy that I was aware of that I shared the VIN number of the number one car which is the number 3535 last four digits because I said Chip you know when you look at any 60 Corvette ask the guy to open up the hood and let's just keep checking the numbers you know and that's what we did we looked at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of 60 Corvettes because we made by chance the car was converted back to a street car too right. just like the number three Chip had so when Chip got sick he took the VIN number and he shared it with a guy named Larry Berman, who runs the uh, the Cunningham website. Anyway, that's Cunningham related. Uh, Larry's just a wonderful individual. At the time, I didn't know who he was. I didn't even knew about the website. To be honest with you, I wasn't a big a, a big computer guy back then. So Chip shared the VIN number before he passed away. To Larry, Larry puts it up on his website. I had no knowledge of that. So over the years, people you know get real savvy. And, these cars get quite collectible, quite rare, quite expensive. This gentleman named Rick Carr, his father passed away, had this old, beat-up, basket-case Corvette. Couldn't figure out the VIN on the car. He says, well, let me, let's maybe we can pull the body off on one side and see if we get the VIN number off the car. So he gets the VIN number off the car, finds out it's a 60 Corvette, and the last four digits says 3535. Wow. His, uh, I think it's a, a cousin or nephew, Google searched it, and went back on Larry Berman's website. That, that's the missing 
Number one, Bruce Cunningham, Lamont's Corvette. <laughs> Larry gets a hold of Lance Miller. Lance Miller goes, you're kidding me. He goes, yes, this guy called me up out of nowhere. He, he took the VIN off the chassis and ran it and came up at my website. And I remember Chip telling me, you know, Kevin, Kevin will probably kill me, but I'm dying anyway. But here's the VIN number of the car. And, you know, maybe by chance, maybe maybe the car will find him. They'll find you. So Larry remembered the story, told Lance about it. Lance goes, you know, let me talk to my mom about that. And and his, his, his mom, Judy Miller, said, yes, Chip promised Kevin if he ever found that car, he would get the car because he got the three car for our family. So Lance calls me up. He goes, you're not going to believe this. But because of your debt, because of my dad, the car's in Florida. And I and me and Lance are very, very close. I'm, I'm as close as Lance I was with, with his father, Chip. And I said to him, you know something, Lance? I think you're full of it. Because, you know, <laughs> when you're, you, you, you kid around all the time, right? We play games with each other. And at the time, I was just getting inducted into the Great Hall of Blooms and Gold at the time, back in 2012, this was. And I said, I said, look, Lance, i got so much on my mind right now. I'm running late. i got to be there for the induction. I said, no, Kevin, this is ain't a joke. I'm telling you, this is a guy down in Florida, in St. Petersburg, Petersburg, Florida, that claims he has been number 3535. He says, I'm going to get the pictures in a couple of days. Wow. So after the induction, I go back home to New York, calls me and goes, hey, did you check your email yet? I said, no. He goes, I got the photographs of that car down in Florida. You better take a look at it. It is a wreck. It's a disaster, the car. <laughs> so I opened up the email, opened up the attachment, and within three seconds, I knew it was the car. Right. Well, Lance, I said, Lance, it's the car. Oh, come on, Kevin. I know you're good, but how good can you be? I go, listen to me. You see that hole in the center of the body? That's the wiper hole. That's only on the Cunningham cars. They took the outside wiper uh, pivot that's on the passenger side. They moved it to the center. And they only did that on the Cunningham cars because we worked on the number three car. Right. I remember that like it was yesterday. I go, the hole's still there. It's the car. And then I saw the starter bracket that was still bolted to the firewall. It was still there. It's only on the Cunningham cars. I said, it's the car. And the Vintag. So what happened was the Vintag was on the steering column. On early 1960, it used to be on the doorpost on the driver's side. And then they moved it later on on the steering column. And when the guy looked at the doorpost, he used to see a Vintag on it because the car, at the time, the car was so heavily customized, it had just two headlights, one on each side. Whereas, you know, from 1953 to 1957, it was only a double headlight, right? A single headlight on each side, two headlights. And then in 1958, it was four headlights, right? right. Two high beams, two low beams, from 58 to 62. So everybody thought it was either a 53 to 57 Corvette. So everybody kept looking at the door jam, not knowing that the, the, that the Vintag was on the steering column. But there was so much dirt and undercoating and caked up, nobody could see the vent on the car. The Vintag was there the whole time. I found some online references that shows how, you know, the differences or how you were able to do that from the fresh air intake on the driver's side to the exhaust hanger straps, you know, all the stuff that you're talking about that only, you know, I hate to say it, but an expert like yourself <laughs> would know just by digging into that other car, you know, knowing that the drill hole bolts you know were different for the fuel pump you know all that kind of stuff that really verifies that that's the real deal you know the remote starter all sorts of cool stuff like that so that must have been a really exciting time that you were reviewing those pictures right well yeah because i i have literally hundreds and hundreds of photographs of the number three car during the restoration before during and after and so i was looking at the pictures but then again i had a car here right and when we when we finally purchased the number one car we had them side by side and I went from left to right, left to right. And, I mean, there was the same group of people that worked on all three cars. So then I looked at, like you said, I looked at the exhaust hanger brackets. 
and you know, wind strap was still there. The hose was still mounted there. I looked at the fuel pump holes. You know, I looked. I looked at the startup, like you said, the startup uh, bracket. I had the big tank in the back, which they only made ten big tank cars in 1960. That was the first year for the big tank. It was 1960. Only made ten of them, and out of that, four went to Lamont. It just was. The more I kept looking, and then of course the wiper hole, which we talked about before, and then I looked underneath the dash. I see the blue. I think the car was originally a, blue, a white car with with a blue interior, and it was ordered out of Don Allen Don Allen Chevrolet right here in New York City. They had, they had the three cars here, so it was just it was just un, it was mind boggling. Just as just looking at the stuff, says son of a gun. This it is what it is. And then we debut the car at Carlisle. What better place to debut it? At a private party in front of 250 people, we all the press there, and we had a smoke machine, and we had the car in the garage, and we made the uh, you know the music, the Odyssey music, and then we opened the garage door, and the smoke clears, and people went just were blown away. But it's rough, but it's real, right? And that's all it matters. So for our listeners, you can go to armsethebees.com and take a look at the pictures. It's maroon. And if you want to see what it should look like, go to Kevin's uh, website, CorvetteRepair.com, and click on About. And you have a great picture of the number three car finished and looking gorgeous there. So it's kind of a before and after shot <laughs> of those two cars, right? Exactly, exactly. You know, it's, uh, it's not as bad as people think because, oh, the only left is a Vintec. That's not true. It has the original frame that's absolutely beautiful that frame remember the car only raced two races it raced the Sebring in 1960 the engine blew and then it went to Lamar and it crashed at the 32 laps and flipped over and caught fire but see the fire wasn't that severe because when you're at a racetrack what's there besides spectators is an emergency crew and there's a fire truck so if there's a crash that emergency crew with the fire trucks are on there within seconds so they put that thing out as a matter of fact that car flipped over in the pouring rain. So the fr- it was on fire, but the fire was, was diminished pretty quickly. Between the emergency crew and the fire trucks and the rain, you know, there was damage, but the car's got the original birdcage, including the original floor, including the original firewall. It's got the original Vintec. It's got the original chassis. It's got the original big tank. I mean, it's got the original doors on the car because we have photographs of it back in April 1962 when a guy named Perry Balwell was a customizer who bought it from uh, Cunningham and customized the car and put the signal headlights on each side on it. So we have the complete chain of ownership on that car besides. Right. So that right. car is concrete, bulletproof. It's the car plus the documentation from Le Mans. Right. So it's basically a no-brainer. It, and, and why people would knock the car, it's such a piece of history, and we are going to put that car back together. Hopefully we, we'll have the opportunity to, to put it back together again because it's going to sell. It can sell for a dollar. Or we could sell for over a million. I really hope that when the hammer falls, you know, the next day you're getting that phone call <laughs> saying, we need to ship it up there as soon as possible. Because I'm sure it's a couple-year project to get it done. Uh, yeah, it will be. It will be a couple-year project for sure. But we're, we're ready to go on it. You know, we, we have the experience. We have the knowledge. And we have a lot of the parts that were hand-fabricated that we, we made duplicates of. So we're, we're pretty excited about it. I just hope it goes to a great home. Um, I've got a lot of calls on that thing already. I got a lot of people that appear to be interested, but see, no one's telling you, you know, how bad they want it because you know nobody nobody wants to be uh, overbid or whatever, uh, even though it's no reserve. But it, it's going to be very interesting who comes out of the closet to try to buy that car. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to know where it goes in the future. I do want to know 
Is the speedometer original? It says Fascial Vega Jager speedometer. Is that original to the car? Absolutely not. That's just an aftermarket thing they put on later on. Okay. That was the, that was the, the dash was all heavily modified. The center console part of it, a piece of it, uh, the original center console where the, the radio would normally be is still there. It's broken apart pretty badly, but it, it's it's there. Um, right. I mean, I, I think I found at least two dozen um, uh, forensic evidence on there about telltale signs that it, there's no question. Even still had the original uh, wiring harness for the, the light on the right side rear quarter panel. It still had the breather tube for the fresh air, like you said, coming in from the outside into the driver's side. I mean, it's just it's just amazing what that car still had on it. Because I, I think the car was, well, the car was parked from 1976 until 2012. Nothing was really done with the car. Uh, the judge car who passed away uh, bought that car for 200 bucks in 76. Bought wow. up a used car lot, a Sunoco gas station used car lot for 200 bucks. It was too ugly, the car. That's Nobody wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to find them so you can afford them. Eventually, we want to have all three together. It's going to be 65 years in the making. Think about it. 1960. I know when we're going to debut it. I'd like to. I'd like to wait 65 years. So, what's that going to be? It's going to be 2025. 25. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe have all three cars back at Le Mans. Wow, that would be incredible. That's a great target date. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, you got to think of this, Greg. Um, the car is representing the United States. It's like going to the Olympics. The most prestigious race in the world is the 24 hours of Le Mans. Bar none. Bar none. Yeah. That is the. That's like the grand papa of racing. So having that car, and that was the first car on the starting grid, and the first guy that drove that car was Briggs Cunningham. Now, I went to Zora Duntoff's home after he passed away. I was invited to go there with a guy named Jerry Burton that did the book on Zora Duntoff. And I was able to get a two-page, a handwritten letter that, that Briggs Cunningham wrote um, to Duntoff when he retired in 1974. And I have a copy of that letter, which is an amazing thing. It talks about the number one car because Duntoff was supposed to drive that car with Cunningham at the race. Right. But Ed Cole said, look, if, Dun- if Duntoff goes over there and race that car, our, our, we end our relationship. I'll let Duntoff go in one condition. Promise me you're not going to let him drive that car because he'll probably kill himself. <laughs> right. but you, you, you deal with the most professional, most talented races, and, you know, they're out for blood. So Duntoff go over there and assist you, but I don't want him behind the seat of that car. So he, he, Cunningham gave him his word, I will not let Duntoff drive that car. So he got a young guy named Bill Kimberly to drive that car, and that's the guy that flipped it over in the pouring rain. So right. it's just it's, it's just a great, great story of the whole thing. Yeah, it really is, yeah. So as his podcast posts, is posting on a Thursday. Be sure to tune in to the RM Sotheby's auction. Check it out online on the 22nd. Check it out online and see what happens to that Corvette. So one thing I like to do at the end here, Kevin, is to – Play a little game I think I gave you a heads up on. If I didn't, I apologize. <laughs> but it's called Keep, Cash, and Crush. So I'm going to give you three cars. I'm not giving you L88s, Grand Sports, or prototypes or anything super crazy. But I'll give you three cars, and you have to tell me which one you want to keep forever, which one you're going to cash in, and then which one you're unfortunately going to send to the crusher. So each car you have to tell me, is it, are you going to keep it, are you going to cash it, or are you going to crush it? Are you ready? Yep. All right, so I wanted to find out your perspective on more of the common Corvettes, but still special Corvettes. So I'm going to give you three Corvettes. The first one is a 1963 split window with the 365-horsepower engine, okay? Okay, listening. Just call them all, you know, grade two cars, you know, desirable, not over the top. The second one is a 67, 427, 435-horsepower convertible. 
And then the third one is a 69 L89 convertible. So we have an L89, 69, a 67, 435 horsepower convertible, and then the 63 split window, 365 horse. So which one would you keep forever? Which one would you cash in? And which one would you crush and why? Oh, boy. That's, you know, and they're all great cars. Yes. Um, <laughs> now, you said the 69 is a convertible? Yes. It is. Okay. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Boy, that's a toughie. Um, I'm a big block guy, so it would probably be, I probably, if it's a, if it's a, do I have a choice of colors? Yes, you have choice of colors. Okay. Okay, all right, let's, let's I'll, then I'll keep the 67. I would make it a black car with blue interior, 435 Roadster. That's the car I would keep. Wow, that's, okay. That's, that's, that's a pretty red piece. Boy, um, God, I love the split window, and I love the uh, LA9. Um, boy, that's a toughie. Okay, one I have to sell, the other one I have to crush, right? Yep, and this is where I do not edit oh, out the God. silence. <laughs> okay. Um, I found a split window, and I have to crush the LD9 car. Believe no! That's, 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 that's a toughie, because I, I love them all. Um, you know, why don't you give me like a C4 or something? I don't, that's no brand. <laughs> oh, no, they're yeah. all great, great cars. You know, you damn if you do, you damn if you know. There's no really, there's no winners here with that. That's I mean, right. That's all right. Spectacular cars, and I, I would, you know, it's funny because I'm looking at a uh, how about a '69 L89 automatic that's Ooh. black with blue interior. I've got the paperwork on that car. I'm trying to find the car, and as you know, we did a book called The Corvette Hunter. And I'm just, I'm still looking. I just love the hunt and the chase. And, of course, uh, the end result to find is, is always cool. Well, that's a great point. So you do have a book called The Corvette Hunter, and they can go where to find that? Well, they go right on my website, uh, corvetterepair.com. And uh, I'll give you an autographed copy. The book is 25 bucks, show special. Uh, they're out of print. Uh, I still got some books left. And uh, they sold out uh, about a year and a half they sold out. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really great. And for our listeners, I know quite a few have been sending me some barn find pictures. No Corvettes yet, but if you have a Corvette you would like to share with Kevin, be sure to send it to me at gstanley at rmsouthabeast.com, and we'll make sure he gets it. Uh, you've sent me some really cool stuff, so keep doing it. And uh, we'll see if we can find that L89 black with blue interior. Is that right? Automatic? Automatic coupe. Yep, 69. I got the paperwork on it. I'm just trying to find the car. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time tonight, Kevin. Uh, Greg, a pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.